Hello and welcome to Canerent Sound of Play 202. to the uh to saying 200 that's that's fun we just had our big sound of play 200 special just a couple of issues back i know that uh you've uh spent some time with leon since then so that is nothing new but i'm back ryan i am not canceled in the 200s so um i'm uh kicking off this this new hundred in a way uh with um with a friend of the show's been on a a few times before this is uh, our pal John Richter. Hello, hello. Very happy to be back, and thank you for having me. Sure, yeah, familiar voice, and uh, always a fun chat, and always brings a selection of fun tunes. This week is no different. We have a a wide range of tunes from all sorts of different years in uh, in the history of the medium. So uh, let's, I guess, let's get to that. Um, this this first track that you brought us in with was a very uh, very aggressive kind of bass heavy piece. Uh, it has the very distinctive Mega Drive type of sound to it. So, uh, w- w- what is? Because I'm I'm familiar on a surface level with the game, so you're going to have to be the expert on this one. No, oh, that that'll be easy because I love this game, or I, or I used to love this <laughs> game when I was about ten, I think, when it came out. Um, I, I'm sure it would hold up if you went back to it, though, right? So, well, I, I do that every so often. I've tried to go back to a lot of my old, like my real favorites, and some of them do hold up, some of them less so. This one still mm-hmm. still good because it was a. Rocket Knight Adventures was like, I guess, a cute platformer, 
but with you were controlling a oh what kind of creature was he i'm i'm going to get this wrong and you're going to get loads of angry you know emails into the show <laughs> hamster or something right and he had a he was, see he's got a bit of a tail though doesn't he oh god see oh, this is this is a google worthy thing maybe it was like a fictional <laughs> fantasy creature he was cute and he Could had be. like little furry nose mm-hmm. and you know ears poking out of his suit of armor and his amazing jetpack you play through the first level and it's just walking from left to right shooting at these evil warthog pig type monsters with your sword and you think okay it's just a platformer and then it just becomes this complete bonkers onslaught of next minute oh right now i'm flying in space and the next minute oh now i'm clinging to the bottom of a flying kind of fortress in the sky and there were mini boss fights they were all completely different so it had this real like crazy level of variety which young me was just blown away by this is the best game ever um, and then even to this day, some of the um, stage kind of uh, soundtrack music still I still listen to. I've got one of those apps that lets you kind of listen to, you know, download the soundtracks of old games, Streets of Rage, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And then Rocket Knight Adventures just popped up the other day. I thought, oh, yeah, I remember that. And this track to me is just is, is just awesome. Like if this came on at like a, in a club at a rave, it would to me, it's like a floor filler. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's interesting about the soundtrack to this game, because of course it's Konami, is that Akira Yamaoka worked on it of Silent Hill mm. fame. And it in some ways couldn't be more different, but I guess this was where he cut his musical teeth before he went on to some more sinister offerings. Yeah, Akira Yamaoka kind of pops up in unexpected places sometimes. I wonder, oh gosh, there's, I wish I had the examples off the top of my head, but I remember that there were a couple of kind of comically diverse examples that are just like, that is not where I expected to find him. And I don't remember if it was pre-Silent Hill or post-Silent Hill. Um, but I wonder if, uh, if I mean, obviously, somebody that talented has quite a kind of range of musical skills. And I wonder if those who are kind of typecast in a way get a little frustrated. They want to compose more diverse uh, selections of music but then everybody that comes to them just knows them as like the atmospheric horror guy or whatever yeah he must get uh, people completely associating with the silent hill series obviously mm-hmm. but you wonder if maybe he's like uh, excuse me i also did rocket knight adventures i'll have you know <laughs> I, I also managed to google yeah. the type of creature that sparkster is the, mm. the sort of um, main character apparently he's an opossum so there you go that's what oh, an okay. opossum looks like do you have possums over on that side of the world or because we definitely have them over here so, so so i actually don't know i'm pretty confident we don't we only know okay. we only know possums because dame edna constantly used to refer to everyone as like hello possums at the start of <laughs> her show and that, I think, has, has made them, like, famous. But I, I'm pretty confident they are not native to the UK. Okay. the Yeah, in America, they are definitely... I mean, they're not, like, all over the place. Like, you see them every once in a while. But they are the most horrible-looking creatures. Like, they are just giant rats, essentially. And we'll get, we'll get on to rats later in the show, of course. But that's yeah. a bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> but they are... Uh, they're not well liked but they're also not as despised as you would think that they are because people here like really dislike rats as people everywhere across the world but like possums are just kind of like you don't want them in your house but they're kind of too big to get into your house like in the normal like ratty kind of ways and they're just like they're seen as being very kind of like slow and stupid and so the only times that you really encounter them are like roadkill 
like in a, I guess it's an animal like a, like a sloth, for example. Like if you see one, you, you wouldn't say, "Oh, horrible! Get it away from me!" You'd say, "Oh, what a nice lethargic kind of dopey creature." But if you found one in your house, it probably would freak you out. I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sloths are like nice big throw pillows. I, I don't mind them at all. I think that'd even be a fun pet. Maybe not fun, but... Uh, I'm not sure it would work for a video game either. It'd be like a really slow-paced, relaxing game. <laughs> sloth tale or sloth adventures or something. I'm going to make a note of that. Oh, that's something. <laughs> there might be something there. I'll have to, have to think about that. So you were saying that this is a game that you're kind of afraid to go back to because it might not hold up as well as you expect it to. Are there games in particular, that you've kind of avoided going back to over the years because you have a feeling that they really might not hold up and you don't want to ruin the memory? That's an interesting one because that does happen. I'm trying to think of a good example of a game I've recently played and just been like, oh dear, I wish I hadn't done that. Even the controls, I mean, people talk a lot about, for example, we've just seen the Resident Evil 2 remake Mm-hmm. The old Resident Evil 2, which I do think still holds up, but of course you've got to re, re- navigate the tank controls and get used to that sort of thing, which once, you, once you've once you done it for a little while, it does come back to you, but it does make the game feel very dated. Mm-hmm. The thing is, I guess, a lot of the games that I used to play on my Sega Mega Drive, or, or I guess Genesis in, in your part of the world, mm-hmm. a lot of them were just fun not too complicated sort of romps, you know, like a Sonic the Hedgehog game, and they still hold up to this day. Um, so yeah, uh, this this one, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll have to give it a try. Uh, I'm a little scared to go back to some of the early 3D platformers that I enjoyed back in, you know, back in the old days. Uh, not like old, old stuff, but like PlayStation era. Yeah, com- uh, completely agree. I remember really enjoying, yeah, there's uh, like um, the A Bug's Life game on PlayStation. I am pretty confident will probably not hold up. <laughs> well, the one well, I'm kind well, of nervous about is... Uh, the Toy Story 2 Buzz Lightyear to the Rescue, because I remember that being a really good game back in the day. And I I have a feeling like Bugs Life, I can I can say can probably go either way, but Buzz Lightyear I still kind of believe in. And if that one turned out to not hold up, I'd be a little disappointed. And and yeah, that whole thing about um early days of 3D. So like, remember when, you know, mm-hmm. we're all brought up on these fantastic, beautiful pixel art, side-scrolling, lovely kind of hand-drawn, yeah. it all looks absolutely amazing. Then suddenly, like, polygons got invented and everyone was, <laughs> so, everything was 3D and we were all blown away. Like, I remember me and my mates going, oh my God, did you see that cutscene? And then when you go back, it just looks terrible. You know, you watch something like Flashback or whatever and it, there's no texture <laughs> on them. It's just block, like, try colored triangles to represent some guy's head so it, in a mm-hmm. weird way the older games have kind of aged they're a bit timeless and it's that stuff from like yeah right. late 90s early days of 3d that just looks like garbage yeah i mean obviously there's always going to be room for improvement like even with the old pixel games uh, i mean some of them look incredible but you know obviously creating pixel art for much smaller screens doesn't necessarily like blow up to larger screens as well as they probably would have hoped later on sometimes uh i mean there are still like games that look incredible but uh, i was thinking back to like donkey kong country one like the the illusion is kind of ruined on bigger screens just because the pixels are so big that you know it's just kind of it you know it, it has that mosaic type of effect which i understand is like an aesthetic of its own but i think there's certain things that we're just never going to see in the same way now that we live in a world of bigger screens. So the earliest games are just games. It's just, you know, character has to get from one side of the screen to the other uh-huh. and navigate bad guys. Then you've got 
suddenly the emergence of proper kind of plots and you know big more kind of hollywood epic and in some ways those things again age the games really badly so we're talking about akira yamioka mm. even silent the first silent hill which is still one of my all-time favorite games oh, and you'll know this if you go back to that the the graphics they're kind of okay they still hold up reasonably well but mm-hmm. the voice acting is just diabolically <laughs> bad on that game and also it doesn't help that there's like a 10 second pause between every line of dialogue while it kind of scours the cd for the you know for the um sound so it, it, there's other things that can make a game seem very dated uh, i guess not just not just the graphics i don't know i i wonder if the old text adventures have been have held up just because there's so little to them or whether there are ways in which even they are kind of technically lacking in these days um not to be not to be negative, but you know, interesting to think back to the old days of games and how far we've come. It's I, th- I think that's what's encouraging about you know the whole kind of emergence of indie games and lower budget, smaller teams, smaller studios is there clearly is still a market for g- games of any type. A- a- in other words, games that maybe the AAA sort of studios have consigned to history turns out there is mm-hmm. still an audience for them. So talking about text adventures, I played that game. Oh, what was it called? The one that was like a series of very short stories and opens with um, a text adventure. And I thought that was, I, I will rack my brains for what it's called because I would highly recommend it. stories untold that you're thinking of? That's exactly right. Correct. Okay. I played that recently. I thought it was awesome. And, and in, in effect, the first certainly the first sort of chapter of that game is, is just a text adventure, but really, really mm-hmm. well done. Yeah. And kind of framed in a 3D environment, which is interesting. Yeah, really, really clever. I thought I was, I was dead impressed by that game. Well, it's free on the Epic Game Store now. If any of the listeners have not picked up Stories Untold, it's kind of a miniature um, selection of short horror stories that are presented in a very, I guess, non-traditional kind of way, all, all kind of looking at screens and uh, interacting in a fairly kind of minimal gameplay type of way. But... Um, you know, very effectively delivered. Anyways, uh, I, I did want to take some time to kind of catch up with with you as well and what you've been doing, but uh, it's been a little while since we've listened to some music, so let's let's kick up another song and then let's get back to discussing some stuff after that. This next track is one that I discovered making the uh, the recent um, video game music history uh, mix that I did for the year 1996, which was just put out in Sound of Play 198. Probably should have been 196, shouldn't it have? Oh well. Anyways, 198, go back to that one. It is an uh, hour-long mix of music from the year 1996, including this incredible piece, which I just have to play in its entirety, from The King of Fighters 96. This is Arashi No Saxophone 2 by Papaya, which is the stage name of Masahiko Hataya. This one kicks off with a, with a real, strong, um, real strong statement punctuated by kind of an epic saxophone moment. It just keeps that energy throughout. It's just very, very catchy and has definitely worked its way into my kind of regular rotation of, uh, of video game music just listening to for... Um, just for the pleasure of the music. So uh, I'm uh, I'm only kind of on a surface level familiar with the King of Fighters series. I have played, just kind of dabbled in them in the past. And so uh, I'm afraid I can't be an expert here. But uh, man, if 
the entire series music is this good, then uh, I've really got to dig into that. And because uh, <laughs> this one's a, a real belter, I, I enjoy it greatly.
as I was saying before the last track, I wanted to take some time to find out what you've been up to since the last time you've been on the show. Obviously, uh, we've discussed in the past that uh, you've done some writing work in your history, and I, I guess you've kept up with that since. Yeah, um, and thank you for asking. I so you'll remember from pre- prior appearances on the show that um, I'm masquerading under two different names currently. One of them mm-hmm. is Dave, who is an accountant, and one of them is John, who is a writer. So the goal at the moment is to reduce the amount of time that Dave has to exist in order to pay the bills <laughs> and increase the amount of John we get in the world. And l- luckily for me, I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I've managed to reduce my Dave time to three days a week, which gives me a mm-hmm. couple of weekdays as well as the weekend to really push on the writing stuff. So I've got um, a-, a new novel coming out very soon. Not quite sure yet on the release date or the title. Um, so you'll have to watch this space and I'll, I'll give my, some sort of contact details later on about how people can do that. Um, but that's my first kind of foray into science fiction. So previously I've written kind of noir detective thrillers and a bit of horror. This is still very much noir detective, but set in London in 2039. So this is all kind of emerging new technologies, driverless cars, rudimentary robots, AIs to you know the next kind of wave of Alexa type technology. Mm-hmm. My view of science fiction is that is that I love it, but that often you find it projects quite far into the future, and you've got these mm-hmm. really different dystopian or utopian societies, as opposed to what will this world that we live in now be like in a, in a couple of decades? Because a lot of stuff will be the same. You know, the same houses will still be standing in most cases. There will still be streets with cars in them, um, but they may be driverless. There'll still be people walking around, but maybe we'll have something resembling um, Google Glasses type technology instead of mobile phones. So it was interesting to just try and speculate on what some of those emerging trends might lead to, it, it, you know, in, in the context of a uh, reasonably crazy, hopefully exciting thriller narrative, of course. Is um is sci-fi always speculative towards the future? If somebody were to write like Frankenstein right now, would that still be sci-fi even though it's set in the past? That's a great question. So so almost like a I guess it's alternate history in a yeah. in a way. But I, I, I think, guess like the steampunk stuff would fall into that as well. Correct. Personally, I would I would refer to that as sci-fi. So I would say okay. it, because I guess it's fiction. If you think about what the word the word is, science fiction, it's fiction relating mm-hmm. to the impact of science and scientific advancements and speculating on what some of those might be. So I think if you set that in the past um, or on another planet or wherever, as long as the technology is kind of core to the plot, then I definitely think it qualifies. And, and Frankenstein, okay. by the way, like what a novel that was. You know, Mary Shelley wrote <laughs> that when she was about, what, 18 or 19 or something. It's just unbelievable that, that she did that. So, um, yes, mm-hmm. great, great <laughs> book. Uh, are you uh, comfortable giving an elevator pitch at this point for, for your book? Any details about a plot or anything like that? Very much so. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, In effect, it is a murder mystery thriller where the victim of said murder has been killed by her boyfriend. Her boyfriend has a early example of human enhancement technology, specifically a prosthetic arm that is controlled by a chip in his brain, so brain-computer interface. Uh, He claims that the arm acted autonomously and mm, okay. mur- murders the girl despite him having absolutely no desire to do it. The quandary that leads to for our protagonist, who is a detective investigating the crime, is that the idea that this software that has become completely ubiquitous running running the show across the world 
um, a very much like a beefed up version of Alexa called Tim, the imagination machine. The idea that that is hackable is is mm. very troubling and needs to be kept under wraps. So he needs to investigate, you know, does he, do we believe the boyfriend? Did this hacking occur? If so, who did it? And it, it leads our protagonist into a uh, interesting series of encounters and a slowly unraveling mystery. So hopefully people will enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. That's interesting. You know, there's, um, for any kind of limb replacement, there would have to be some level of non-conscious response to things uh, because our actual arms and legs have kind of pre-cortical, pre-brain uh, reactions that they can kind of take all on their own. I know that like when you put your hand on a hot burner, it will pull itself away um, before the message gets to the brain, which is why you pull it away before you you interpret the sensation of it being hot uh, because all of that kind of decision-making is made in the spinal column instead of in the, the head brain itself. Um, Absolutely. And it really so, starts yeah. to mess with your concept of free will and of identity. Because mm. in, in simple terms, you think of your brain as yourself. So I am me and the place where that consciousness lives is inside my skull. But actually, mm -hmm. there are these different layers of levels of consciousness that have kind of evolved one on top of the other. And then you get into that really murky territory of if, if a part of that is disrupted or removed via an operation, am I still mm -hmm. me if I start to behave and think differently? And it, that, that is quite a, a sort of d d disturbing, dark path to go down in some ways, but uh, certainly a path that I attempt to go down in some of my stuff because it's very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So, of course, towards the end of the show, we'll, uh, we'll get all of your details out there for interested listeners. And so, um, yeah, keep... Uh, keep listening. We will uh, we'll reveal where you can find uh, this and uh, past novels as well, presumably. And then, of course, the name John Richter, that is, uh, that is the, the pen name. And so obviously you can find everything through there. Although I've no idea whether normal writers do this. Do normal writers tell people that their pen name is a pen name? Am I supposed to pretend that it's my real name? I've, I've, I probably need to do some research. <laughs> And I wonder if uh, if Lemony Snicket kept up the masquerade. It's such a believable name, right? <laughs> yeah, I've, definitely, I've met a few uh, Lemonies in my, in my time. Let's listen to some more music here. That's what we're here to do. This is a, a request from the forum coming from Gingertastic01, who says, Cool mechanics, nice art style, charming characters, and a cracker of a soundtrack. Enjoy. This is a piece from the, uh, the very minimalist soundtrack from Donut County. Um, the soundtrack is, I would say it's, it's interesting. It kind of just takes one idea per track. It's not like a hugely evolving soundtrack. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm criticizing it. It's, it's, it's nice in its simplicity. It revels in its simplicity, uh, kind of like the gameplay. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just a very kind of relaxing and, um, yeah, kind of singularly focused, uh, just like kind of the game itself. Um, have you played Donut County before? Nope. No, this is one that I've I've completely missed out on. Um, although I did, uh, before I came on the show, I just had a look at some gameplay footage and it, it sounds mm -hmm. kind of interesting, to be honest, or look, look like something I might might try out. Yeah, I've been, I've been interested to, to give it a shot. It's on the Epic Game Store and, and currently they're having a sale, uh, $10 everything, uh, $10 off everything, $14 and above which I knew was just about where Donut County sat. And so I was really like, oh man, this could be my chance to get in there. $4, not bad at all. And so I went there and it turns out that the original price of Donut County was $13.99. So it didn't 
fall under that $10 off bracket, unfortunately, just missed it by by a single cent. Oh. So it did get a bit of a discount, but uh, nah, nah, not enough because this is the type of game that I expect to uh, receive for free in some like PS Plus or Humble Monthly or something down the line anyways. So I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll get around to it eventually, though. I know what you mean, though. It's like um, sometimes you'll... you'll uh there's games that appeal to you, but not a burning desire, just a, a mild interest. Mm-hmm. And then you look and it's like, oh, it's 15 quid. Shall I go for it? Is it going to be yeah. my free game next month? Oh, I'll hold out. Oh no, go on, I'll buy it. And then of course, lo and behold, the ones you buy are the ones that then immediately come out three weeks later for free. Always, and, oh. yeah. Yeah, I feel like going on Twitter sometimes being like, you have me personally to thank for the PlayStation Plus games this, this month, you know, because <laughs> if I had not bought them beforehand, if I had not bought them the day before they were announced, then they probably, it would be something entirely different in that alternate world, right? I wonder how many, um, it's probably not a good one to think about, how much money have, between us, we have spent on games that we could have got for yeah. free if we just waited a bit. Probably quite a lot, but never mind. It's one of the things I think about, like a genie wish type scenario. Like I wish that like I had like the equivalent amount of money that I would have if I bought each video game that I currently own at its like all time cheapest rate. And just like how much I would end up getting back, like thousands of dollars, it must be. I mean, even that even that question, how much money have I spent in my life on video games and video game related paraphernalia. I just just don't want to know because it'll be lots. (laughs) No, I mean, because that includes consoles and VR headsets and graphics cards and yeah, just everything involved. It's it's not uh, it, not good to think about. It is uh, not good for the human soul to consider. <laughs> Definitely not. But you've got to spend your money on something, right? And I think this is a is a it's a good thing to spend your money on. That's right. And speaking of the gamiest of games, let's listen to this piece from Donut County. This is called Garbage Day, composed by Daniel Kostner and Ben Esposito.
now we are jumping into a brand new game. And uh, this is, I, 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 I like to think that I'm pretty up to date with video games, but this is one that I had not heard a word about until the review came through from Easy Allies, which, uh, you know, I, I enjoy their reviews a lot. They, they do a very good job and they show off gameplay footage in the review videos. And so it's a good place to get a sense of like what the game feels like beforehand. But, you know, they aren't well known for doing like super obscure games. Usually it's just kind of like the top tier games that get those video reviews because they take a lot of effort to produce. Um, and so I was uh, I was surprised to see on my feed just kind of a review of a game that I had never heard of before. <laughs> so what what is this? And I guess why hadn't I heard it? That's probably difficult to answer. But like, do you get a sense that like it isn't as well known as it could have been? I don't know. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. It's, so I am um, mm-hmm. I, I suspect I am less up to date than you with latest developments because you work in the industry whereas i kind of hover around it um and, and enjoying it if, if that makes sense one of me i mentioned earlier that I've, i'm lucky enough to have a bit more time to write in, in currently so one of the things i've been doing is a few video game reviews for one of my friends who works for a, a website um and this game was one that came up for review he asked me if i wanted to do it and like you i had completely hadn't heard of it at all um, but it felt pretty it, a big budget, you know. It feels like a big a big deal game. There's a lot of mm-hmm. care and effort has gone into making this thing. It's very very slick, polished, very impressive graphics. Um, so yeah, it is a strange one that it seems to be very uh, sort of a bit under the radar. Um, I, I think it was you know it's a, it's made by a French studio, so it's um, originally in, in French language. There's a there's an English dubbed version, mm. or you can just play it with the subtitles. But uh, that that shouldn't matter. I, I can't really understand why this one seems to be a, a bit of a hidden gem. Um, and obviously, I, with it being so new, I won't give away any spoilers a, a, about the plot. But I, I definitely would recommend it. I thought it was a, a very enjoyable if horrifyingly disturbing unpleasant game to play so the uh the perception that i have is that you are playing uh two kind of children that are trying to survive without their parents it seems uh a kind of a black plague type of event um there are kind of hordes of rats and stuff as well that that plague you along your journey and uh you're just trying to survive in this kind of medieval-ish um very hostile environment uh is that an accurate rundown of the of the type of game it is very accurate all i would say is it 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 sort of seems to flip between wanting to accurately portray 14th century france during the early stage of the hundred years war and the outbreak of the black death and it feels like this kind of um you know very realistically depicted beautiful settings you do indeed play a, a couple of you know very likable sweet protagonists it's like a, um, a teenage a sort of gutsy teenage girl that you control for the majority of the game with her little very young brother hugo is this kind of sickly child mm-hmm. but but then the plot goes absolutely nuts um, and again I, I won't spoil it um but it, it does veer very far from realistic um and th- you also touched on the other key sort of component of this game which is there's a lot of rats in it so for, for yeah. someone who, like me who <laughs> does not like rats at all not even a little bit um 
I had a, a very bad experience with a new house a few years ago where I found that mm. there was some living in the loft and I felt like I was living inside a HP Lovecraft short story for a couple of weeks <laughs> while we got that sorted out, you know, scuttling up and down inside the walls. It, whoa, oh, <laughs> yeah. Shudder. Um, and this game completely brought all that feeling fl- flooding back. The actual sort of swarms of rats are, are depicted so believably sort of writhing climbing all over each other desperately trying to get to you so they can you know chew you to bits um you, you keep them at bay using light sources so a lot of the game actually becomes there's there's kind of stealth mechanics in there with avoiding horrible people of which there are many but the rat bits become almost kind of puzzles so it's like how do i get from here to over there by using this light source to move these rats out of my way um, but the whole thing just gives you this real flesh-crawling level of discomfort throughout. And then I know that uh, much of the game is based on stealth, which in anything except for kind of the most, I guess, the most polished AAA games, and even then sometimes, um, and then obviously in uh, in indie games that are specifically focused around stealth as their core and primary conceit, um, stealth can sometimes be kind of an annoying thing. Uh, does this one do stealth well, or... Is it an area of the game that you kind of wish they didn't dabble in? It's interesting. I agree completely with what you've just said, that the vast majority of times I don't enjoy stealth because even games where, you know, it's either like instant kill, oh, I've been spotted, oh, I'm dead, great, you know, frustrating, Mm -hmm. or it's, oh, I've not been instant killed, but I've kind of wrecked the level and all the guards are now alerted and they've trebled the number of guards. And it it just often feels like this really frustrating, harsh punishment because it's not always very obvious what you're supposed to do. And if you make it too obvious, then it's too easy and pointless, right? So it's, I agree that stealth is often not done well. I think this game, it's not perfect, but it's decent. It's very, it plays very similarly to The Last of Us, which I think did a a good Mm, job of its stealth. And it's very, very similar in terms of kind of controls and feel and position of the camera. So as a stealth game, I think this is a good one. Um, and and yeah, it, I didn't find myself becoming too frustrated at any any section apart from literally maybe one or two towards the end. Well, cool. Let's um, let's go ahead and listen to Inquisition by Olivier de Rivier. I, is that the way that that would be pronounced? Because we've run across this before. That is a composer that we featured, and I always feel like that can't be correct. <laughs> It sounds amazing. I think let's go with it because it makes him sound really French and we know it's a French game (laughs) and uh, and it it just sounds really cool. And this track is absolutely ace as well. It's like a real kind of, Mm. um, it's used as as kind of a theme tune for the Inquisition who are the antagonists in the game and they're really, really horrible. So I just think this is this kind of ponderous, slowly building, unpleasant noise that suggests that bad things are going to happen when these guys turn up and they inevitably do. Very cool. Well, this is Inquisition from A Plague Tale Innocence.
again to the forum. This is Blue All Day, who says unification optimism. The way it builds upon itself, incorporating new sounds, but coming just short of being fully developed, is such a brilliant way to put you in the midst of a forgotten civilization of great warriors. This is Ancient Castle by Nobuo Uematsu from Final Fantasy II, which we covered in Canonrince number 306, if you want to go back and hear our full thoughts on that. Uh, this is the proper Final Fantasy II, not Final Fantasy IV, I believe it was, that was released as two outside of Japan. But uh, yeah, it's a yeah, Famicom original and has been released on a few systems since then. Yeah, it is a Final Fantasy castle music type of piece if I've ever heard one. So let's get straight into Ancient Castle from Final Fantasy II. <laughs> games that I've been playing recently, I went back to after the uh, the second DLC pack came out, was Hat in Time, which, you know, I've spoken highly of in the past, but I just kind of really wanted to double down. Now that the DLC is out there, like really everybody pick this up. Like it is, it's an incredible game, really. Like it is a Mario 64-like platformer. And I say Mario 64 specifically because it 
has a very similar control scheme and kind of a general overall uh, style of play. You know, it does the Mario 64 thing. A lot of 3D platformers, the jumping mechanics are in such a way that they give you like your first jump is for general, like getting that vertical distance. And then your second jump is usually like a like a flutter like you would get in um, in Banjo-Kazooie or playing as Luigi in Super Mario 3D World or in uh, Astrobot where you can kind of hover a little bit to position yourself to kind of make up for the fact that judging depth perception can be a little difficult in these types of games. Uh, and so they give you some way of like slowing it down and really positioning yourself before you land on the platform. Um, but Mario 64 did things a little bit differently in that your extra jump in a way was a dive which propelled you even faster and made it even more difficult to land exactly where you wanted to but it gave you the distance and Mario's moveset was predictable enough to where you became very quickly very good at judging exactly where he would land. Um, then there was, you know, a nice amount of aftertouch in there that you can kind of fine tune along the way, but it didn't slow the action down in its most, yes, in its uh, most dangerous moments, uh, which a lot of other 3D platformers do. Um, and uh, a hat in time is kind of the same way. It also has a a dive which you can initiate in the air at any time, um, which you can even turn into kind of a somersault once you hit the ground. Uh, Kind of like a Super Mario Odyssey in that way. It's interesting that the thing about the jump mechanics in 3D platformers, because yeah, it's like, how do you get that right? You don't want people to get infuriated that they think they're going to land and, oh no, I've missed it and I'm dead. Yeah. But then do you put like sort of invisible walls and make it impossible to die? Well, that takes away any sort of element of platforming. Because right. So yeah, it's a, that is quite a tricky nut to crack, actually. Yeah, Hatton Time has uh, quite a bit of air control. So, you know, it's... It avoids frustration because one, like the jump arc is very predictable and it does a good job of kind of like building its world around the jump arc. Like that should be obvious, but there's a lot of games that I feel don't necessarily take that into consideration as much as they probably should. Uh, yeah. And also you just get so much air control that even though you are diving full body forward, uh, it's it's still pretty easy to position yourself where you want to be, but it's just tricky enough to... Uh, to still feel very satisfying when you get it right. And what is but, it, Ryan, what, what is it about the game? You, you were recommending it so highly. Is it just, it right. feels like Mario 64 and Mario 64 was ace, so therefore this game is great? Or is there <laughs> something else that is is the, the real selling point? Yeah, so it is a very, very unusual game in that it uses its Mario 64 3D platforming setup to deliver a wildly diverse gameplay experience. Like, level to level, the things that you're doing are just incredibly different. Like you could start off uh, the very opening stage is as typical a 3D platformer stage as you'll ever find. But, you know, later on, as you, you know, even just moving to the second or third stage, you're engaging with uh, kind of story type of elements following investigations. Um, there's one level where you're playing a detective on a train and you have to find evidence and accuse people of, perform of performing a crime um, all in a kind of 3D platformer type of environment. There's levels where you are 
leading a parade or um, trying to do uh, chores on a uh, cruise ship and just all of these. It, it's so wildly diverse from one scene to the next. You're filming movies and doing all kinds of, of, of crazy things. And so it has a ton of variety, a ton of different gameplay styles all kind of baked into it. The writing is super fun. There's like genuinely terrifying <laughs> um, sur- uh, survival horror type levels as well uh, in their uh, kind of obligatory haunted mansion stage. We talked about that at the top of the show, didn't we? These g- games that are like packed with so much variety that yeah. you completely don't know what's going to come next. And I, I love that when they managed to pull that off. So you, you, instead of, oh, I've got my head around this game and I can see that these are the mechanics and this is how the game works and there might be a couple of additional elements. But when they manage to completely transcend that and it's just every level is something completely new, that that is great. So I mm-hmm. might have to check this out in that case. Yeah, and then since its original release, which, you know, it was a fully featured and wildly diverse game from launch, it has come out with two DLC packs, the most recent of which is a kind of an open world takeoff on like a Yakuza type story where you are uh, trying to, to survive a cat mafia and uh, do tasks for them, uh, which is weird and, and crazy and cool. It came with a uh, with like an online multiplayer patch. And so not only could you do two player co-op, but you can do like public lobbies of up to 50 people in these platforming levels, uh, which is just absolutely nuts. And I've seen some wild videos of people um, doing some, you know, kind of crazy things with all of the other people that are involved in the map. So kind of like the the wild transformative fun of the uh, Just Cause 2 multiplayer patch. Um, And then they have uh, very open modding tools, which people have taken full advantage of on the uh, Steam Workshop. And so people have created entire new worlds. Like there's there's a level called New Hat City, which is kind of like New Donk City from Super Mario Odyssey, but a completely original uh, city level, which is unlike so impressively huge so impressively well considered that it's like how is this not a part of the base game like this is just a mod that somebody made and put out there for free this is incredible work people have done mods that turn it into like a phoenix Wright style court case there's uh, somebody recreated pt in a hat in time (laughs) so this is absolutely nuts and so there's not only just a crazy amount of stuff to do in the base game, but through the DLC and through the mods is just always expanding and it's a wild game and uh, it should definitely be experienced by more people. Sold. I'm going to buy it immediately after we finish recording. I'm, I'm, that's, <laughs> that's a great uh, sales pitch. Yeah, it's, it's quite a game. And then as if it needed anything else, its soundtrack is also really, really good. And we're going to play a piece from that soundtrack. This is a remix of the original piece composed by the soundtrack's composer, Pascal Michael Stifel. Um, this remix is uh, composed by uh, Kumu, Kumu, I believe, Q-U-M-U. It's in a, kind of an internet remixer of sorts. And uh, this remix doesn't change that much about the original piece, but it just makes the instruments kind of hit a little harder. And I just think for this particular piece, it, um, it seems to fit. So this is called Welcome to Mafia Town Remix. Uh, Mafia Town is the first world in uh, Hatton Time. And so, you know, it it plays 
as kind of the background music to one of these early stages. Yeah, gosh, so much I can recommend about the game that the writing and characters are so, so good and so, so funny. And the music is incredible as well. Highly recommended. I hadn't time. Check it out. Until then, let's listen to Welcome to Mafia Town Remix from Hatton Time. off of the B-Sides soundtrack from A Hat in Time, which is a $5 extra for um, not only some remixed and unused pieces of music, but also uh, the soundtrack from the first of the DLCs. Another very generous package right there. This next piece comes from the forum. The contribution says, The first time you see Crash, this is speaking of Crash Bandicoot, when you boot up his second game, he's greeting you from a jetpack, looking impossibly cooler than anything in his first adventure. Yet for the majority of the game, said jetpack is nowhere to be seen. The series would eventually go overboard with gimmicks, uh, but though there were plenty to go around here, the main focus was still on platforming, as it should be. This meant that when you finally got to the zero platforming jetpack stages, they all felt more impactful. And as far as I'm concerned, there's still a blast to play. Having completely free movement in all dimensions felt exhilarating, especially as I weaved through the lasers and electrical wires in an evil space station, and sometimes I would stop to look at the earth, occasionally shown in the far distance, and listen to the music. Not only does it sound appropriately spacey, it sounds eerie, beautiful, and exciting. It makes a mutated marsupial, 
Hunting pink crystals and a jetpack sound like a grandiose blast off into humanity's final frontier. It's a heck of a capper to the adventure, and for me, is the high part of the entire Naughty Dog crash soundscape, which is no small feat. I love both the original and remastered versions of this track for different reasons, although I lack the musical know-how to art- articulate why. Luckily for me, Albert Vamp Prince on YouTube has remixed both into a single track, which as far as I'm concerned is the definitive version. Yes, this is Rocket Pack Attack by Josh Mansell, remixed by Al Vamp Prince from Crash Bandicoot 2, Cortex Strikes Back, and the Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy, Remaster Trilogy, which you can find on uh, PS4, PC, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch. And um, yeah, as with a lot of the Crash music, it's uh, it kind of plays with a surf rock type of sound, and... Um, yeah, keeps it high energy and uh, and weird, which I like. You know, the Crash music definitely keeps it weird. Have you played much Crash in your time? Weirdly, I have never played a Crash Bandicoot game, and I don't. It's strange because I'm up the right age, you know, to have picked it up on the original PlayStation when it first came out. But for whatever reason, it just never. Maybe it was that thing about 3D platforming that we talked about earlier that never really appealed to me or because or, mm-hmm. I was never I never owned a Nintendo console um, until very recently I never um, enjoyed any of the kind of Sonic the Hedgehogs 3D outings having been a mega, you know a Mega Drive Sega guy so perhaps that was it that by the time I got a PlayStation I was all about like wow Resident Evil zombies wow Metal Gear Solid and, and the platform inside just didn't um, grab me at, at that particular time I've played both the Insane Trilogy and then the uh, the similar uh, Spyro Reignited Trilogy, which came out, which um, I was kind of surprised because I was really looking forward to getting back into Crash Bandicoot stuff, knowing it's a bit dated these days, but there's still enough kind of care and attention to detail to make it really interesting. I did enjoy my time going back to it, but not enough to really finish the game, hmm. to finish any of the three games included, uh, in fact. There's enough kind of annoying parts of the game to where I didn't really uh i mean i enjoyed parts of it and then other parts of it i just felt like uh, i don't want to do this level i might just come back to it later and just never did so i don't know if even i like as a series fan that kind of grew up with the with those early playstation games can give it a full recommendation it's a funny one actually because i did have having said what i just said i actually did buy the original spyro Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, I remember finding it, it was, it was kind of okay. I think I probably finished yeah. it at the time, but don't remember it being any kind of, um, amazing experience. That one to me seems a strange one to have sort of rebooted. Um, yeah. so Crash seems a lot more, um, sort of ubiquitous and popular and everyone would reckon, oh yeah, Crash Bandicoot. I used to have that. Spyro seemed like a really obscure choice for them to sort of d- dust off again. I mean, it had its, uh, Skylanders series for a long time. I know that Spyro kind of took a backseat to the emerging other original Skylanders characters um, as the series went on, but he was originally tied to that one, and that one was wildly popular for a very long time. Didn't actually know that. I had no idea that mm, Skylanders yeah. was associated with Spyro. My mate is... is Maybe I should say was. No, is a big Skylanders fan. He's got loads of them in his flat. Um, you know, the little kind of figures. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I didn't actually realize that was associated with Spyro. Yeah, just like how the uh, the Raving Rabbids were originally associated with Rayman. But anyways, I did also go back to the uh, Spyro Reignited trilogy, as I said, and I ended up 
really enjoying that. You know, I also remember like back when I was younger thinking that the Spyro games were just kind of like, okay, but I don't know if they've done any kind of like polishing up to the mechanics or whether it's just that there's nothing like them in the modern age. Like they represent a very different style of platformer that we just haven't gotten since then. But I, I adored every one of those games. And I think that the, uh, the first one is definitely like the best in the series still, but I, I really, really enjoyed going back to those ones in the reignited trilogy. So um, again, yeah, good recommendation there. Uh, no, definitely. I'll uh, take that on board. I wish they would do um, Ape Escape. I wish that would get some sort of modern yeah. remake or sequel. That's just, I don't understand why that has not happened. It was such a good game. Yeah, of course, the, the first Ape Escape game is coming up pretty quick on the Kano Rinse podcast. And so we can get some kind of modern impressions of how that holds up. I'm guessing that the controls have not held up as well as we would like to think that they have. But in a modern reboot, they could obviously... Um, go back and uh, polish those up and make them more kind of suitable to modern audiences. But uh, as far as uh, Sony goes, the next game on their lush remaster train is uh, is Medieval. Um, and then we're also getting a, uh, a remake of the original Crash Team Racing, which I will say is an, uh, an incredible kart racer for the time. Uh, I, I think that like it was so far ahead of uh, what Mario Kart 64 was doing at the time. Um, I think that the Mario Kart series since has uh, surpassed it. And then the uh, Sonic and All-Stars Racing Transformed has uh, also surpassed what it was doing back then. But, um, you know, with uh, with a bit of spit shine that the remaster will no doubt be giving it, uh, it certainly could be a contender again. And uh, I would love to see it. It is a lot of really smart design things uh for a kart racing game so um maybe maybe we're checking out i don't know we'll see definitely and um, and a good segue as well we've gone we've covered a lot of kind of uh quite long-running franchises and ips there but circled back around to crash which of course That's is the right. next track <laughs> yeah so let's listen to rock it pack attack by joss mansell originally uh from uh the crash bandicoot 2 cortex strikes back
next track comes from a uh, a game that I have a great fondness for, Kane uh, and Rinse adjacent community, uh, the computer game show, our, uh, I don't want to say sister podcast, our friendly rival podcast. Uh, we don't share personnel, but um, I, I guess except for as guests, but uh, so we are not officially linked, but we do like to, um, I, I think we do share a, a large listener base between the two of us. So, um, but uh, anyways, one of the hosts, uh, uh, James Farley has been going through, has been really, um, really struggling to get through a deadly premonition uh, recently. And so I've been watching his streams and have been really enjoying um, revisiting this game I, the fondness that I have for the game makes me a bit sad that he's not having a better time with it, but you know, obviously he's giving it his all and I'm not going to begrudge him. I'm not going to say he's playing it wrong or anything like that. You know, it's, he's, he's getting in there. He's being a real trooper and, uh, and is getting through the game. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one, but you're bringing your track from deadly premonitions. So, um, what is your history with the game? Oh yeah, I mean, I, it's a funny one. I I know that it is really divisive because I have read that it is really divisive, and I've seen that some yes. people give it great reviews and some people give it terrible reviews. I love it. I don't get it. I don't understand. You know, your um, your associate who is struggling his way through it. Obviously, everyone is is completely different. But yeah, I can't I can't understand why there's this big chunk of uh, of the population who just have kind of bounced off this game. I just think it's got everything. It's it's a, a proper whodunit murder mystery where you you know you physically get in a car and drive quite slowly around a town to interrogate people. That's brilliant. It's got this crazy, quirky cast of characters. I get that it's massively derivative of Twin Peaks, but I love Twin mm-hmm. Peaks, so that's great. It's good. And I think some of the things that it subtly, you know, it changes a bit in the interests of not being completely plagiaristic, but some of those changes are improvements on the actual show. Mm. Um, one particular uh, sort of plot twist that I, of course, cannot reveal, but um, is almost surpasses anything that Twin Peaks managed to pull off, in my opinion, and I, and I mm-hmm. love that show. Um, I like the main character. I like the voice acting. I find him funny, likable. Um, you know, there are some genuinely kind of scary, quite fraught bits in the game. Mainly, it's just hilarious and, and funny. You know, this thing of... I think people talk about it as like, oh, it's so random and all this weird stuff happens. It's so weird. But it's it's not weird and makes you kind of shrug and look a bit baffled. It's weird, good, weird, funny. I, I just think yeah. this game is, is a really unique, brilliant, brilliant game with, with a properly compelling story and some quite sort of harrowing bits. Um, so it's, yeah, for me, it's just got everything and I love it um, and played through it. I actually played it for the first time on the PS3 remastered version um, not, not mm-hmm. very many years ago. And I, I'm, I think I'm right in saying they kind of changed the gameplay a little bit so that the controls were a bit more, mm, okay. I guess, Re- Resident Evil 4-esque, I think, to make it a bit a bit uh, less painful to play through. Because I think if you try and play through the actual original version, it just the, the sort of shooting mechanics make it quite a slog. Um, and I'm certainly not suggesting the gameplay is, is the best part. But um, yeah, I from my perspective, it's kind of massively recommended. And the soundtrack, again, complete mixed bag of bonkers, different songs of all types, um, but contains some real gems. And this one is like, 
it's a properly moving piece of music. It's, I find it quite sad. Um, there's there's a point about forty five seconds in where there's like this kind of choir voice swells up and there's a key change, and I just get goosebumps every time I listen to it. I mm, yeah. flipping love this song. The entire soundtrack is very memorable, uh, oftentimes because they don't have that many pieces of music in the soundtrack, and so they cycle through them quite often, and so you become very familiar with um, with the various pieces, and they're all very distinct from one another, I think just because they had to be so economical with the composition of the soundtrack that had to make each piece carry such a different tone. There really wasn't any overlap. So you had the the piece for sad scenes, you had the piece for funny scenes, you had the piece for scary scenes, and you know, and you heard them so much and then oftentimes they they weren't matched exactly with what was happening on screen. And so sometimes you'd get <laughs> yeah. a horrifying murder scene and then you would step outside and somebody would say something funny and it'd kick into the the whistling guitar piece and it's just like what didn't we just like how are we how are we back here musically so quickly (laughs) yeah just jarring shifts in tone there's like a dead body in the background (laughs) but it's playing this kind of zany wacky like hey light-hearted But yeah, yeah. The, the bit um, the bit that this song I think is repeatedly used for is the kind of between levels or between episodes. Mm, right. This quite quite clever device to um, sort of recap the plot, and it would be um, Francis York Morgan, the main character, would be talking to Zach. His at, at that point in the game, you believe is some sort of imaginary friend, and you're a bit unclear: mm-hmm. is he talking to this imaginary friend, or is he addressing me through the fourth wall? Right. And yeah. it, I love that. Thought it was brilliant. And he's asking you these questions. He's like, well, Zach, we went into the old abandoned warehouse and we found something. Isn't that right? But what did we find? And you have to kind of pick from a multiple choice. And it doesn't matter. There's no kind of stakes. But it was just an interesting way of just making sure you were keeping up with the at times quite convoluted story. I'd recommend if anyone does want to uh, to go through this one, obviously the the remastered version um, is uh, cleaned up a little bit from the original Xbox 360 version, which is... Uh, unfortunately, the version that uh, James Farley is going through right now, which does not make his task easier. Um, but if you find that you don't get on with the gameplay, which is totally understandable, then um, there is a very good Let's Play that I've recommended before by a super great friend, which is a very, very thorough uh, playthrough of the game with a very entertaining and minimal kind of commentary. You know, I usually don't like commentary. My Anytime I search for gameplay, I always follow it up with no commentary because I just don't care for that many of the YouTubers that that produce that type of content. But um, Me too, me too. It's, it's usually, especially when it's horror games, because I love horror games and yeah. you know, any sort of commentary YouTuber stuff, it's just some guy pretending to yeah, scream right. and, oh, painful. But Super Great Friend is, uh, is, is very informative and very kind of subdued and so definitely does not take away from from the experience. So I, I recommend that that let's play. And if you are intending to play it, uh, another thing that, um, that James has uh, skipped over in his, his play through the game, which I think is kind of like hurting the pacing overall is a uh, uh, play through the side quests. Even if you need to review a guide of like what to where to go and when to trigger the side quests, because I think that if you just go through the main story, the pacing is kind of hurt because it, layers on more and more of the gameplay pieces. A lot of the non-survival horror gameplay game is relegated to the side quests. And so if you're skipping those, then you are missing kind of a lot of the variety of the game and a lot of the character moments and the things that really make the game 
um, that make the game strong and kind of only seeing the parts that aren't as strong. So there's probably a lot of recommendations for like uh, ways to best approach this type of game, but uh, it's it's a very interesting one. Uh, we reviewed it back in uh, Canada Mint's issue 93, if you want to go way back then and, uh, and hear our thoughts on that one. Um, Although I can but, imagine your mate wouldn't react kindly if you said to him, no, 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 you, you, the reason you're hating it so much is you're not playing all the side quests. Go and do those as well. Yeah, <laughs> no, probably, I, He probably wouldn't <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> no, I, 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 if somebody does not care for it, then that is entirely fair and they are welcome to do uh, whatever they want with it. <laughs> but anyways, this is York and Zack by Ryu Kunigasa. Takuya Kobayashi and Hiromi Mizutani from Deadly Premonition, aka Red Seeds Profile, as it was known in Japan. have one piece to listen to again uh, at the end of the show but first we want to encourage everyone to request tracks of their own at the canadarince.com slash forum or tweet us at twitter tweet us at twitter i guess yeah at canadarince and uh request tracks that you would like to hear on future sounds of play we will play them there we have some other podcasts canadarince which comes out on mondays playwright my other podcast which comes out on thursdays and then the sausage factory which comes out on fridays all are highly recommended 
Uh, if you've not listened to Playwright before, our podcast about pitching original video game ideas and workshopping them until they come to be something completely weird and demented. Um, we just had our 100th episode not too long ago, and we are coming up on 104, which is our two-year special, uh, consecutively not missed a week yet. So, you know, if you've not listened to those and there's never been a better time to start, you have a hundred issues to catch up on if you end up liking it. But if not, then uh, come celebrate with us for our milestones. That's a fun one. Uh, we also have a Patreon uh, at uh, patreon.com slash If you enjoy any of the four podcasts that we put out on the network, um, then please do consider donating a dollar a month through our Patreon uh, it is very, uh, very well received, and we are very thankful for um, for that. Anyways, uh, I wanted to thank John for joining me again. And as we uh, spoke about earlier in the show, you wanted to give some details. Where can people find your written works? Uh, yes, and thank you again. I uh, I guess the best place to go is to my website. So that's www.john-richter.com. That's J O N dash r-i-c-h-t-e-r.com so that's just my weird wafflings um and and also links to my existing books so i have three books out two crime thrillers one short horror story collection sci-fi thriller on the way and more to come in the in the very near future too i've also uh, literally like today just undertaken my first ever blog post. So I thought I'd give that whole blogging hey. thing a go. So um, if anyone's interested, then please do. Your feedback will be much appreciated on whether it's interesting, boring, useful, not useful. Um, so yeah, just trying to flood the internet with content at the moment and um, hopefully uh, attract some more readers to my stuff, um, which hopefully people enjoy. And you can also catch me on Twitter. That's probably the best way. Like, yeah, like you said before, tweet tweet me on Twitter. Is that? I'm yeah. not sure if that's I don't the know. right that's yeah. <laughs> Tweet me on Twitter. I'm at Richter Writes. Um, and, and yeah, if you're interested again in my uh, over enthusiastic waffling, then uh, that's where you can find some more of it. Is that blog kind of a real life type of blog, like a like a diary of sorts, or is it like a themed blog in a way? My life tends to be bouncing from one thing to be really excited about, and then that wears off, and then you get really excited about another thing. And so, at the mm. moment, I've been re- because I've been writing this whole sci-fi thing. I've been really, really into sort of futurism and upcoming mm, technological yeah. trends and robots. And so, I thought my first post, let's let's go for that. Um, and I, I guess the idea is that maybe a couple of posts a week, but it'll just be whatever thing I'm excited about at that precise moment when I sit down to write it. So I'm sure horror gaming will uh, crop up at some point very soon in there. There we go. Well, yeah, very exciting. Well, thank you again for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's listen to this final piece of music. This is a remix of the Wii Shop channel theme. Obviously one of the better known pieces in video game music now, oddly enough, uh, just as the background music that would play in the Nintendo Wii's shopping channel. But man, what a, what a theme. And just every remix of it, just because it's such a unique piece, kind of straddles the line of genre. It's just such like a chameleon of a piece that like any genre you put it into, it's going to sound really unique and just sound really good so uh, this is a piece by vgr uh, stands for video game remixes you can find on itunes you can find on youtube probably on spotify as well but i just really liked this one you know they took the original kind of like loungy slightly twee and jazzy piece 
and turned it into kind of like a more like EDM type of uh, type of dancey beat um, with some kind of heavier hitting bass notes. And uh, um, yeah, it's it's transformative, but it definitely keeps everything that you love about the original. So I don't know this. This just found me in a good place. This particular mix. <laughs> it's hard to turn down a Wii Shop channel piece. So let's listen to the Wii Shop Channel remix from the Nintendo Wii, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> 